You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Warren Pies, founder at 314 Research. Today I'm joined with, by Tony Greer, founder of TG Macro. Tony, good to have you back. How are you doing? I'm great, Warren. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, it feels like every time we do one of these, it's been a pretty eventful market day. No exception today. Um, so let's uh, let's get to it. Let's talk about the action. Uh, what I saw out there, market rallying, obviously uh, some reports that Russia, Ukraine could be cooling off and that Russian forces are retreating. Uh, and that kind of you know lit the wick for all of these different trades that we've been monitoring starting to unwind. But in the background, some interesting and I think really much talked about developments economically, we saw the 210 yield curve finally invert. Uh, I don't know exactly where it closed, but at some point today, it was officially inverted for the first time this cycle, following on from the uh, forward OIS curve inverting that we've talked about. So we see some ominous economic signs out there, some positive geopolitical signs, and the markets are, you know, really, this has been the hate, most hated rally I can remember in my in my trading career. So, um, and I can't, I have to admit, I haven't seen it correctly and didn't see it coming. So I wanted to, to pick your brain, see what your uh, take on it all was and what was really grabbing your attention today. Yeah, Warren, it's, it's, uh, this stuff is really, really tough to figure out right now. You know, it feels like today is the first day in a while that we haven't seen two year yields roofing to a new high. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a, a sea change there. We've got break-evens pulling back off of the high prints in fairly large magnitude. So what it really is, is, you know, we had that, you know, inflation theme steamroll rolling for a while. We've had extremely strong commodities that, that you know, maybe found their Icarus prints into the Ukraine-Russia story. Um, you know, backed off into a dip. And then, you know, we saw a rally and now we're kind of consolidating somewhere in between. Um, but you, like you said, we've got now, you know, the Russia-Ukraine peace talk rumors flying around. We've got a slowdown um, potentially being priced in out of China due to their virus, um, you know, controls uh, for what's going on there. It feels like it's just a little bit of a pullback in, uh, you know, in in behind the FOMC, post-FOMC rally, you know, everything took the air out of all of those commodity trades very briefly. And now I think the markets are just finding a range while equities retrace. But this retracement in equities is obviously getting very serious. You know, you've got the NASDAQ pushing up against major moving average resistance levels right now. And to me, that's, you know, kind of the key on how much further this retracement rally is going to go. You know, but we're still being led, you know, by the names that and sectors that are kind of weak on the year. For example, today, huge bounce in retail, which is still down on the year. Home builders up 3% today. That is another sector getting trounced on the year. Um, strength in biotech and ARK Innovation ETF 
you know, these aren't the leaders that I want to follow into battle if we're going to go back into a bull market rally in the S&P. I'd much rather see natural resources taken off, and I would even prefer to see tech leadership. Um, but we're not seeing that either. So I'm really, really cautious right now, Warren. Feels like there might be a pullback mode in the commodity trade, and you got to buy the dip. That's what the world's telling me. That's a good point is buy the dip. <clears throat> I think on the commodity trade, I would agree with you. You know, our indicators for the oil market and the, the math that we've walked through over the last couple of times you and I've been together are, you know, basically along with that. I think this is an opportunity to continue to get along that energy sector, especially uh, if you're pairing that with any any kind of broad market exposure. You know, we continues to trade at negative correlation to the rest of the market. And when you're constructing a portfolio, there's a lot of value in that. Um, a chart I was going to show later, but might as well skip to it right now. Uh, one thing that we've talked about and uh, we've talked about on this show and repeatedly through the weeks is how energy has outperformed the rest of the sectors this year. Uh, and it's been about, a, you know, I don't know year to date, but at one point it was 40 percent up for the energy sector. Every other sector flatter down on the year. Uh, and what that's going to do is force momentum hedge fund momentum funds to move into these energy stocks aggressively. So we model at 314. Uh, a generic mo momentum strategy off the S&P 1500. And the chart we're looking at here, blue line is energy stocks, purple line is consumer discretionary stocks. And the idea here, the yellow highlighted area is what we're gonna see as we roll forward into the summer. As these funds rebalance across different schedules at different time frequencies, they're going to have to buy energy stocks in size. So this is another kind of technical flow related tailwind to that energy trade. And so. You know, there's the old phrase that you, you know, you buy on the cannons and you sell on the trumpets. And, and you know, maybe that works in, in the reverse here for, for energy as well. So um, that interesting to hear you say buy the dip. Uh, you, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree. You know, they've been the stocks in the sector have been scorching for quite a while. You know, they're kind of they've been riding well above their moving averages. It would shock nobody to see, you know, a market dynamic pullback across the board. It still seems like that the right direction is to, to buy that dip in the commodity space and especially in the energy space. You know, I, I wrote up a chart um, just this morning. I was trying to find things to buy if the energy market was going to come off. And, you know, one of the stocks that have been on top of my leaderboard is Southwestern Energy. And, you know, that's just one name that I dialed into. And I'm like, you know, if you if you dial back and look at this name on a longer term horizon, you know, it, it's as cheap as it's been in a long time. And then you dial in in the, the last couple of years and you've got this massive head and shoulders, inverted head and shoulders bottom that is so irresistible as a trader, you know, with a one dollar low in the rearview mirror and a false breakdown and everything. So when you start to see these long term bottoming formations, Warren, it totally lines up with what, you know, the rebalancing that you're talking about that I'm definitely expecting in the coming months. So th this is uh, this is sort of the trade of the year for me, the great rotation, and there's obviously going to be ebbs and flows, but I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say that when the year shakes out, that it's going to be natural resources on top, and it's going to be tech struggling wildly behind that because of the move in rates. 
Yeah, um, I mean, fundamentally, I think it makes sense. Uh, I mean, Southwest is going to be exposed to domestic natural gas prices. And, you know, when you zoom out from the conflict, uh, the war in Russia and Ukraine, you know, again, the big theme that I take away, no matter what happens with the negotiations and everything else, it's really going to be a difficult time, I think, for the world to go back to its pre-February 24th state. And part of that new world is a real emphasis on energy security. Uh, we've heard already there's going to be fast tracking of uh, LNG shipments from the U.S. into Europe. Uh, I think that we've proven that our domestic energy policymakers are sometimes prone to mistakes. And, you know, if we funnel too much LNG uh, over to Europe or we force that, you know, you could end up um, closing that arbitrage that the that the, that's been so profitable for exporting LNG over the coming years if the right policy levers or the wrong policy levers depending on your viewpoint are um, are undertaken but either way I think you get a bid into domestic energy natural gas and energy in general um, which includes uh, southwestern there yeah the, you know it's it's uh it's key I think to stay pretty focused on the natural gas side of this equation and the reverberating effects of U.S. energy policy and European energy policy. You know, we've we've been uh, I've been speaking with Doomberg quite a bit, and we we recorded an interview yesterday where we went over you know exactly what's going on, where natural gas is now spiking ammonia prices, which is now spiking fertilizer prices, and now you're seeing a lot of those fertilizers just become you know pure play arbitrages between cheaper U.S. natural gas prices and being able to, you know, make fertilizer under these conditions and export it to the places where fertilizer is way more expensive. So, you know, as long as that trade is alive and it seems like it's going to be with us for a while, you know, as long as there's going to be pressure on natural gas production, Europe's going to be under tremendous pressure to build up their storage over these summer months. And we'll see if they take that opportunity. But I think that we're definitely looking in the right direction for you know, the serious trigger points in this market, because I think that's the, you know, that's the cutting edge, Warren, of this inflation problem that that seems like we're going to be dealing with at some point where, you know, the, the, the costs of food are going to cause problems, you know, just like we've seen before in the Arab Spring, but more potential to cause them all over the world, because we're at this point where all commodities are kind of rising in unison. And even though there's a little bit of a pullback on the screen today, I think the fact that they're, they've been higher for longer is something that we really have to concern ourselves with. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I totally agree with you. I think that really this leads to the big question. I think what's been moving markets, if you really get to the the crux of it, which is how strong is the underlying economy? And I think the market is constantly trying to discount 
how close that next contraction is. And a big factor on the the timing of the next contraction will be the commodity trade, because commodities do uh, tighten the, the economic conditions, if not financial conditions that we're, we're dealing with. And so, you know, we had uh, Raul Paul and Lynn Alden had a conversation earlier in the week, and they kind of touched on this. Let's Let's take a listen to what they had to say, and then get back and talk about it for a minute. It feels that this commodity price increase in inflation has actually been a massive monetary tightening. And the market hasn't yet quite grappled with that because everyone's screaming inflation. But because wages haven't gone up as much, profits, corporate profits haven't gone as much, what you've actually done is massively tightened. So you know, I think I estimated it's around 2% interest rates already, which is why the with yield curve's inverting. It's like, no, no, please don't raise rates now because we're going straight to negative yield curve if that's the case. You thinking through that way, and also, therefore, if we do see that shift, the the risk end of the market, um, you know, these arc stocks tend to do pretty well. It's very good for crypto. It's very good for a number of things. Yeah. So one thing I've been looking at is even before this war, we had the declining PMI environment, so economic deceleration. And historically, it's been very challenging for for any central bank to tighten into a decelerating economy, especially you know the developed world. They, they often, you know, unfortunately, the emerging market often has to do it. Um, whereas the developed world, uh, you know, they've generally tightened into accelerating economies. Uh, and so even before this, I was kind of taking the under on how many rate hikes they would ultimately do in this cycle because it didn't seem like to me like a lot of, you know, whether or not you, you read Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, all these different analysts out there, they don't seem to be referring to the fact that they're tightening into a decelerating economy. Well, well, there you go, Tony. Uh, Lynn and uh, Raul kind of talking about how the commodity price pressures are, you know, flow through obviously to the real macro environment. What do you, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you know what's amazing to me, Warren, is that we've been, you know, we've been talking about this trade for a while. Obviously, we've been tracking it since, you know, the the collapse of the lockdown, which is now, you know, two full calendar years ago. So it, it's amazing that you know, even though we've been sort of on the beaten path of the move into hard asset trade for a long time. It's been encouraging to me to read fresh research reports from, you know, places as astute as 13D. Um, and you read their report from over the weekend, and they're talking about, you know, a potential sustained shift into the new market leaders being commodities, commodity-related sectors, and markets that are likely to benefit from continued rising inflation. And it's just refreshing to hear, you know, a, a more bulge bracket research firm admitting that these are the new market leaders now, and in such a way that it sounds like the world hasn't already positioned into them. And I still keep saying by, you know, by the, by, by virtue of how much length there still is in these big behemoth tech stocks, that until a lot of that length comes out, we haven't even seen the whites of their eyes yet in terms of that rotation into natural resources. So I still think there's a point ahead of us where it sees its finest day and we're not there yet. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with you. I just don't think that there's going to be some kind of uh, just grand resolution to what's what's happened uh, overseas and, and geopolitically in general. I don't think we can go back to the way things were. Uh, and I do think you're seeing kind of mixed signals in the in the economic market, economic signals that we we get from different markets, the rate market today. Big news: yield curve inverts, the twos tens that everybody kind of classically looks at. Uh, let's take a look at a chart that we put together because there is kind of a unique uh, 
thing going on in the, the yield curve land, so to speak. So we've heard a lot about the yield curve inversion. Some people brought up even a month ago when the forward OIS 210 curve inverted that there's already these kind of un less, uh, less uh, famous versions of the yield curve that have inverted. So today we get the classic 210 inversion, but when you look at the ones, tens, and then the three-month versus 10-month, which is something the Fed has called out as what they're looking at, you know, you're seeing those curves actually steepen a bit here recently. So there is a, a mixed signal that we're getting from these curves, and, and, and uh, it's something that we haven't really seen recently. Uh, one kind of analog that we looked at was the 2000, 1999 to 2001 period where we had a recession in 2001. We pulled that chart up. And you can see the four yield curves that we look at here from 314. And you can see this order of inversion. We went forward OIS, then twos, tens, like we saw today, and then ones, tens, and then the latest cycle is the three month, 10 month. And so you were still kind of a far distance between seeing this happen. But you know, if the Fed is as aggressive as they have signaled in the next couple meetings, then this thing could flatten and invert really quick on these other measures. So this is an analog to look at. And then we leave some stats on this, this table, on this chart to show how much of a lead time you usually get between yield curve inversion and recession. It's about 20 to 24 months, depending on which one you're looking at. So it's not perfect. But uh, this is kind of the table that I'm seeing and how it's set right now. What do you think, Tony? That is some really, really sharp analysis is what I think, Warren. Um, I appreciate that you share that. It's interesting to see the timing of how kind of those dominoes fall in the in the curve, right? And and try to apply it to what we're seeing now. I'm not that smart. I can't, you know, I can't track all of these curves and decide, you know, what they're telling me. I've been leaning on the break-even five-year really as my my um, you know my go-to inflation beacon as to what the market can tolerate. And so I guess it's just it's it just shouldn't surprise me now that. You know, as they've gotten so much farther away from their moving averages and the move has gotten so steep that there's finally a reprieve in break evens. There's finally, you know, a couple basis points of reprieve in rates. The market's reacting accordingly in a slight unwind of the great rotation. It all seems like it's falling right in, you know, between the ebb and flow. I mean, we're still working off the effects of the post FOMC rally. Right. I mean, the Nasdaq, the, the S&P now is up almost 500 S&P points since the day before the F, uh, before the FOMC meeting, March 16. So it still seems like we're in that sort of runaway short covering freight train and we're going to see where it tops out um, and then we'll make our next decision on the S&P. But I still think that the natural resources sector is one that's going to come roaring back regardless of, of which way the curves meld, because I still think that with this attack on supply, that those sectors are going to be the ones that perform this year. Yeah, the, the way we tied it up, um, because we're kind of confused too. So, you know, it's not that we have all the answers. We just like to look at it and try and orient ourselves through data. But the way we kind of tied it all together is we created, all right, let's blend these various yield curve signals and then also look at like high yield spread. So we kind of have our own three factor blend of financial conditions. It's it, these are all things that the fed has talked about. And what's interesting is that different times and historically the fed picks different measures of the yield curve to pay attention to. So if you go back to uh, 2016 papers, they were talking about what they call the excess bond premium, which is really just 
credit spreads versus the 210 yield curve. That's 2016. In 2018, the San Francisco Fed wrote a whole paper about uh, the ones versus 10, one year versus 10 year yield curve and its predictive power. And now what we have is Powell picking the latest possible cycle version of that yield curve to help drive their, their messaging. I think you can kind of pick and mix and match whatever yield curve you want. But what we did is we blended a couple of the Fed's mentioned curves, the one versus 10, the twos versus 10, and the high yield credit spreads. And we created a recession probability model from those three factors. You can throw that on the screen. In the bottom line, however you want to slice it, is that we've seen, according to just these three factor probability model, recession probability in the next 12 months has gone from 10% heading into the year, so almost very little probability of a recession going forward to about 40% on these three factors. And so this blends the yield curves. It kind of takes away that divergent effect of the various uh, measures that you could have with the yield curve. And it also throws in credit spreads, which is another thing, another financial condition that the Fed has pointed to as being um, really predictive. They did that in their 2016 paper of forward economic growth. So this is our best guess at where we're going. And so however you slice it, it looks like we're closer to a recession today, much closer than we were at the beginning of the year. And I think that is the aggressive Fed policy and now just commodities spiking everywhere. And, and again, we don't see a really short uh, path to resolution for this. So, you know, I think you got to stay on those trades as a hedge to the, the rest of your equity portfolio for sure. Makes sense to me, man. You know, it's uh it doesn't look like they want to stop right now. You know, they're taking them right. They took them, you know, right into the close. We had a little bit of a dip in gold today that kind of shakes up the commodity trade and all the inflation players like myself. Um, you know, I think it's relevant that uh, 10 year yields are finally testing the downtrend in Raul's chart of truth. You know, and I think that that how that plays out is probably going to determine how the next quarter goes. You know, so maybe if we bounce off of the resistance level in the chart of truth and back off because we're pricing in a little bit more stagflation. I could certainly see that being one scenario for the next couple of months. And I could certainly see this just being a little bit of a pause at the trend line and bonds continue lower and yields continue higher um, just because that inflation, the, the natural inflation buzz is not going to go away from underneath the markets. You know, we're going to we are definitely going to run into um, you know, we, we're still going to be printing higher gasoline prices. We're going to continue to, um, you know, the jet fuel prices continue to rally. There's very low inventories and distillates across the board. So, you know, I just don't think that this inflation problem is just going to fly back into the bottle. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's going to be difficult. It's hard to see that path. Um, kind of to something you brought up earlier, but we're getting questions about it right now, is just more expound more on your view on wheat and fertilizer. What are you, what are you seeing there? I know you talk, said you talked to Doomberg about that, and it's something you've been paying attention to. 
Yeah, you know, it's still it's still kind of a slow burning fuse, you know, from from I don't want to speak for Doomberg at all because he's got his own very serious views, which I respect. But it seems like a slow burning fuse towards higher prices. You know, we're, we're at that stage in the game where farmers are now faced with the bill of the 3x, 4x and 5x fertilizer costs and have to decide how to navigate around that. You know, so their options are going to be to, you know, maybe plant less of less acreage of this grain here and less acreage there and figure out how to fill in um, the yield. But I think that that's going to still be a huge problem. But, you know, this is a very slow moving problem because we're talking about crop growth and harvesting. And it just seems like, you know, I, I really feel for the farmer's plight as it is with all of the risk that they've got to manage. Um, you know, just to come up with a successful crop each year. And now you're throwing in the cost against all of the weather and against all of the natural issues they've got. Now you're going ahead and, and quintupling their fertilizer costs and kind of changing the whole way that their farm is set up to do business. So we're going to see that disruption is finally going to, you know, reverberate um, into the price of the markets. And it doesn't seem like grains are set up to be able to withstand that kind of a shock especially if we're going to take that Russian import offline. So I, I still see a dangerous situation, Warren, where prices can go higher in the grain market, largely based on higher energy costs, therefore higher fertilizer costs for longer. So, you know, it's that thing where the genie doesn't go back in the bottle, so the problem never goes away. Yeah, I think that's the the phrase for many of these commodities that are tied to the the Russia Ukraine war is that how do you get the genie back in the bottle? I mean, maybe maybe there's a way forward, and that's what the market would be signaling here. Uh, but it reminds me a little bit of you know into the COVID crisis in 2020 when you know it was we could see this thing coming a while off in the distance, and the market reacted a little bit but then traded up and kind of chopped around before it really recognized how serious the problem was. So we could be wrong here and I could very well be wrong and I hope I'm wrong because it would be a great thing for, you know, the global economy markets for humanity in general. But I have a really difficult time seeing how we go back to normal and justifying equity prices that are just like a stone's throw away from all time highs. But that's just where I'm at mentally right now. Um, the, uh, the question's kind of related to all that stuff that we're getting in. Uh, one of them was to you is like, do you really think we can have oil prices, Tony, push up to the 100 to $115 level without consumers tapping out? So it kind of ties all this stuff together in that question. Yeah, you know, people are still paying for people are still paying for, you know, cargoes of jet fuel at these prices. People are still paying for gasoline at these prices. You know, it's still at the um we hate this, it's painful phase, but the majority of the world is still making it through okay. You know, Jared Dillian, you know, highlighted it the other day and was like, you know, the rising gas price is really going to add up to costing guys like you and I an extra 50 bucks a month, an extra 100 bucks a month. You know, the, the middle class can weather that without too much of a problem. The lower class has a much bigger problem with that. So, you know, this might take some time before the demand destruction, and it might take a higher price, in my opinion, um, before the demand destruction really sets in. I don't think we're there yet. I think that people probably, you know, the gasoline is still a lot more of your first dollar earned to spend. And so I, I don't think that you see the the 
pullback there. I think maybe you see the pullback in some other discretionary item spending first before you see, you know, demand destruction and people canceling vacations or trips, um, you know, due to gas prices being so high. So I still feel feel like we've got a little bit of room there um, in terms of the demand not being that, you know, th this is a supply issue that we've got, Warren. So I'm not I'm not considering the demand side a problem just yet with prices where they are now. Yeah, and I think that uh, there's a bit of a false sense of security going on in the oil market right now because there's still there really there is no physical market disruption yet because all the crude that was flowing in March was already paid for around previous to the the, the war and previous to really escalation of the war any of the sanctions self sanctioning all those things we've seen so oil is still flowing based on the kind of length of your traditional uh, you know contract to buy a cargo of, of oil uh, coming going into April, these these kinds of purchases will will roll off. So we're going to start to see new cards flipped over, and we're going to start to realize globally how big the gap is that's going to open up. It's going to start to get real in April and May in the crude oil market. So I think that's the supply side that you know people are kind of saying waving a clear flag in some ways, but I think that truthfully, we haven't even seen the pain from this yet in the real market. And so that's number one. Number two, based on our analysis, I think that, you know, at $130 a barrel, the, uh, the, the cost of crude oil to the global economy is about 6%. And traditionally, that's about where you start seeing demand destruction come off. So 130 to 150 has been the level we've highlighted. But depending on how big that eventual gap is that opens up, based off of the, the disruption uh, from the, the war, then it could take a quite a bit of time for that demand to whittle down and close that gap. You know, and so that's something we've talked about here. And ultimately, that's the way you get to a stagflationary recipe, is if you have demand falling off, but prices remaining high. So prices are no longer responsive to demand. And that's a tough situation for consumers. And if this thing is as what I think it's going to be, that's that's a very uh, probable outcome for us. Um, the uh, I guess it's a good kind of wrap up or close to wrapping up question here from uh, someone on YouTube. And this is a good question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So it sounded like you said short covering, but anything else? What in the world do you think about this equity rally is the, the question? And because like I think it's confusing a lot of people and we're getting that in the questions here. Well, put it this way, you can only draw on, you know, you can draw on two things right now. You can draw on your view and you can draw on experience from what you've seen, right? And I'm kind of leaning on a mixture of both, leaning on this view that, broadly speaking, yields are going to go higher and that that's going to be a more difficult environment for technology to perform in. So with that being my view, I've still got the experience right now of having lived through and traded aggressively through the dot-com crash. And if you were around for that, Warren, you remember that the short covering rallies were steep in price and they led everybody back into the markets and they led everybody to believe that everything was going to be okay. And then they were very punishing and violent you know, from, from points after that. So I can feel this being sort of, you know, the eye of the selling storm for tech, where we saw that initial breakdown as the reaction to higher rates filtered through the markets. Now we see the Federal Reserve naturally 
show up on March 16th and rescue the NASDAQ from 20% bear market territory into a straight up bull market rally, right? That seems like something that is within their rhyme and reason to be able to concoct. So now we're at the point where everybody's still chasing these flag these stocks up a flagpole and eventually we'll get to the, you know, last incremental ding-dong buyer that rings the bell and all of a sudden there may be nobody left to buy technology stocks for several weeks as we pivot back into the natural resources sector. So I could see that sort of getting back on its feet. I'm trying to remember the days of, you know, 2000 when the Nasdaq backed off from 5K and I can't tell you how many times I've looked at the charts recently and remembered how many times the stock market got back up above all the moving averages and closed up there for several days and then literally fainted and was 20% lower in a month. So, you know, you've got to have some recollection that these are how bear markets in certain sectors develop, that we are not out of the woods in terms of technology entering a bear market because of higher rates. And you kind of got to you kind of have to not leave your feet in terms of establishing, you know, what you want your view to be towards this rotation and, you know, use the ebbs and flows of the market to establish your positions, if that's fair. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a good place to to wrap it up. Um, you know, I think the bottom line that I'm hearing is that we're still in the bear market. You know, remember, I think it was 2000. We had a Nasdaq had a 40% rally in 2000, the year 2000, you know, still while it, you know, bled out over the, the next few years. So, yeah, I, I, you have to keep a perspective uh, during these times, but I think you also have to keep an open mind. So, you know, we're, we'll be, I think key to that is having models and indicators that, that are agnostic to the narrative that you tell yourself and the story you tell yourself. So that's what we're going to try and do. And, and hopefully we can bring some of that on the Tuesdays when we do this daily briefing stuff. So. It's a great point, Warren. I, I like your style. I, I also like your sort of semi GI Joe looking haircut there, but but I don't want to be very controversial. I don't want to be too controversial on the daily briefing. Keep my name out of your mouth, Tony. If we're in the same I location, yeah, I might have to come up there. You know, this doesn't, this doesn't have to get heated up, Warren. We're just talking about markets, all right? I just it's a haircut yeah. comment, all right? I, I I understand. You don't have to get offended. <laughs> What a great way to end daily briefing, That's man. That's about as natural as the one that we saw the other night. <laughs> that was perfect. That's, that's really great job covering the markets today. I think that was a really useful chart with um, all those curve inversions and things like that. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Always appreciate talking to you. Good time. Um, and uh, no slapping here. We're going to keep, uh, keep our hands to ourselves. So <laughs> No drama. No drama here in the daily briefing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Have a good one. Have a good one, gang. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.